This is Paul Moon, director of the documentary Samuel Barber, Absolute Beauty, and you're listening to the second episode of what is becoming an occasional podcast series in the film's afterlife. I'm calling it Capricorn Conversations to focus on some more American musicians and composers who maybe encircled that era of American music who somehow managed at one point or another to congregate in mind or spirit or body at that Capricorn house in Mount Kisco, New York, where Barbara and Minotti lived. I'm sitting here with John LaCherry in New York City, and we are one month away from the release of his new book, For the Love of Music, A Conductor's Guide to the Art of Listening. John, thanks for taking the time to share. Happy to be here. Your biography mentions that one of your first encounters with opera as a boy was a mall and the night visitors. What did that music sound like to you as a boy? I wonder if it sounded modern at the time, and, and wh where did that send you in the rest of your life? Well, it would be easy to say that I loved it, but I really didn't. And I, um, NBC Opera at that time was a portal into opera. And um, so I do remember Madame Butterfly with Elaine Malbin singing in, in English. And that led me to literally save up my dimes and quarters to buy a recording of Madame Butterfly, which then surprised me because it was in Italian. Um, I, I used to parody Amal and the Night Visitors um, when the mother is going, oh, Amal, I used to go to the piano, and, and because I found it, I don't know, it didn't, didn't make me want to love it. And by the way, at the same time, I think probably most of the little boys who were seen on television, maybe I was jealous of them, it didn't matter who was Amal or, uh, or the, the boy in the King and I film from 1955, um, we used to call them gushy kids because there was something about them that, that, that I don't know. We just, my, my friend Howard lived next door, um, and I would kind of laugh about it. But in retrospect, of course, my relationship with Minotti would become something quite different as the years went by. And I, I look at Amal as a kind of beginning of that relationship, which then, you know, was fulfilled with so The Saint of Bleecker Street, which is the first opera I ever conducted, which was at Wolf Trap Farm Park in 1973, the summer of 73, and um, or 72, I'm not sure, but it's around that time. And, um, and then, of course, doing La Boheme at the Washington Opera when I was music director and Giancarlo directed it. And in in, uh, in Spoleto, Tamu Tamu, the European premiere. And that's when I met Sam at Spoleto in that summer. And I guess that would have been the summer of 73. So I'd love to go get to that collaboration, that fruitful collaboration. But I'd love to set it up too, talking about, because when we do go in order through your biography, something that at least appeals to me is that you, you do mention growing up absorbing Broadway musicals at the same time as, dare I say, high opera, or in other words, the formal composition techniques of the operatic form as it's evolved. Um, maybe also at a time when there was less of a separation between the two things. Is it possible to criticize Broadway musicals being written today, staying diplomatic, um, in comparison to the musicals that you brought to life last century? Well. You can, but 
But remember, all of music drama is always in a process of development. It's always in transition. We're always in transition, and the difference is that we're living in this particular transition. When I first saw uh, the telephone and the medium, it was at City Opera. And when I saw Street Scene by Court File, again, it was at City Opera. Um, at the same time, uh, at the New York S City Center, uh, Julius Rudell was conducting... Um, um, Brigadoon and Carousel with Howard Keel and Barbara Cook. I was nine years old at the time, or ten years old around that time. Um, I think this split has always kind of been there, a little bit like operetta and opera, like the opera and the opera comique. Um, and the fact is that you know the Italians have a much more useful word for this. They just call it la lirica, lyric theater. And they don't really make a distinction, you know. I mean, we have this distinction of Broadway musicals and operas. But, you know, when you get into these kind of arguments about what is Porgy and Bess, um, which, by the way, it's an opera. It just happened to have opened in a Broadway theater. But but Gershwin, in, you know, intended, insisted, and wrote an opera. Whether, what you do with it afterwards is someone else's business now. Giancarlo was having operas produced on Broadway. We should, we should, in Broadway houses and running multiple times during the week. At the same time, he was also writing operas for the Met. So, I mean, depending on, I don't know, the speed of the information, the complexity of the drama, uh, its commercial viability, um, the house in which a theater, a piece of music is performed, music theater, is, is really the, the part that really matters here. I mean, the Barber Seville uh, had its world premiere in, in Rome at the Teatro Argentina, which seats 500 people. You know, I, I conducted a Barber Seville at the Terrace Theater in Washington, which was the first time, you know, people could actually experience Rossini in the theater that was the appropriate size for it. So when the bass drum got hit, it was a big deal. You do that same orchestration at, at a 4,000-seat opera house, and it's quite different. So I think Giancarlo understood that, his instinctive uh, abilities. And he said to me that he never modeled his operas on Puccini, though he was frequently accused of, of writing warmed over Puccini. But his, his inspiration was Monteverdi. He, he was looking at a very er, much earlier form of opera, in fact, the first form of opera, where there were ariosos and recitatives. Well, this is a perfect moment, perhaps, to introduce another character, because I don't think anyone can have a conversation with John Mocheri and not talk about Leonard Bernstein and your long, fruitful collaboration with that great composer. Um, he is somebody who, if there is a distinction, definitely uh, went between the worlds. But maybe what I'd like to ask you only just for a moment is, if the narrative is that he struggled with that identity between Broadway and being taken, so to speak, seriously as a composer of formal concert music, what do you make of that? Well, I think that's part of a, a very sad history of the 20th century that, that people had to either had to choose. Um, one of the stories I like to tell is that very... Late in my in my career, I learned in in the nineteen early nineteen eighties, I co-produced On Your Toes on Broadway, the Rogers and Hart musical, and George Abbott was ninety six and he directed it again as he had done uh, in nineteen thirty six, um, and Kitty Carlisle Hart took over the role of Peggy Porterfield, and Kitty told me about when she was dating George Gershwin, 
about a year or so before he died in Los Angeles. And she told me that George would come back from his lessons with Arnold Schoenberg and put music on the floor and and be so enthusiastic about the 12-tone serial techniques. And she said, I have no idea what George was talking about, but he was so excited. Now, you go a little further in this, when George Gershwin did pass away, the national eulogy was delivered by Arnold Schoenberg on the radio. And listeners to this can find it. You can just go to the Schoenberg Institute or just Schoenberg on Gershwin, and you'll hear this very emotional, highly inflected English of, uh, of Arnold Schoenberg. And the reason I bring this up to answer your question is that Gershwin so admired Arnold Schoenberg, just as he did Ravel and Alban Berg. Um, but it was Schoenberg who said there's no question that he was a great composer. So I say to people, if George Gershwin and Arnold Schoenberg didn't have to choose between one or the other, why should I? Why can't I love Gershwin and Schoenberg? After all, they did. And so we live in a in, a, in this categorized world of music. Lenny um, lived music. I mean, really, uh, he, his passport, well, when he filled out his form saying, you know, occupation, he did not write conductor or composer. He wrote musician. And so that really covers the whole story of Leonard Bernstein, musician. Now, um, Lenny's, uh, well, I don't know, need to have strong personalities around him to help shape his work, he was a great collaborator, um, is clear. I mean, West Side Story is West Side Story not only because of Lenny's brilliant music, but because he was really responding to the strength of Jerome Robbins. It wasn't so much Arthur. Uh, Steve was his co-lyricist. Um, but it was it was really Robbins, and uh, so later in his life, I've just written another book, which is called Leonard Bernstein: A Centennial Celebration, which is an electronic book. It's a short book about my experiences with him. But at one point, he said, "You know, why does it always feel like when I play my music for Jerry Robbins, I always feel like I'm auditioning for him?" And the and the fact is, he, he was. Um, so when Lenny was on his own writing his symphonies, for example, or the years he spent looking for the right libretto for an opera, because he really wanted to write operas the rest of his life, um, was was tougher because he kind of needed the the input of others. Now, when he came to Glasgow in 1988, when we did what is the definitive version of Candide, we did go to Edinburgh, and we did go to Yesterhouse to spend some time with John Carlo, which was a pretty interesting lunch, I've got to say. Let's talk about Minotti then, because you've you've already said today that your opera career, in a, in, in a sense, began with that production of The Saint of Bleecker Street, Street True. at Wolf Tramp. That does place you at the later side of Minotti's life alongside Barber's body of work, their collaboration. Um, I wonder if you just in open form have recollections of that. I think someone's used the word coterie of composers and musicians who might have sometimes congregated around that society of whether it's Capricorn or in general of the music scene of that period. Well, there, there are really two parts to the story. There's the Giancarlo I knew 
as as a collaborator with me, but as a conductor of his operas, um, or as the conductor in the one case of, of of La Boheme, which he was directing. And by the way, I would say that nobody, I've never seen or known anybody who's was better at directing La Boheme. I mean, he understood every aspect of that incredibly complex and and funny libretto. He just knew what to do and knew what everything meant, and that was a real privilege. But I have to say that when I worked with John Carlo uh, from scratch, as it were, on La Loca, which was highly fraught, it was one of the worst experiences of my life, and I think his also, but also with Tamu Tamu, where we were doing his opera in the Italian translation for the first time at Spoleto, Spoleto was then his kingdom. And that's when you had uh, Sam Barber and Tommy Shippers and Bob Wilson. And you, you had this, this group of people there who were the coterie, were the, were, you know, you had, you had the Contessa Toscanini. You had all these people who, who were around Giancarlo. And he was you know, the king of that castle. He treated Sam with such love. And um, and I remember the few times I spent with Sam Barber, his kindness, the profound, um, just even the way he spoke. You know, when you talk to Sam, you got this sense of, I don't know, the adult in the room. He and, he and Giancarlo told that story to me when he was very old and talked about their first meeting and how when Giancarlo was checking in at Curtis Institute and was terrified and didn't speak English, that this older man, you know, came up behind him and said, Vous êtes Italien? And so this was a sweet moment where Sam was speaking to Giancarlo in French to take care of him. And that relationship, um, you know, went, continued throughout their lives. The, when they stopped living together or, or were no longer sexual partners, they they still lived together. They loved each other. They loved each other till the day uh, Sam passed away. And when Giancarlo spoke of Sam, it was with such love. And it, it was a, one of the great love stories of the 20th century, no question. There is a certain sadness, though, in the arrival of this problematic uh, work in Samuel Barber's uh, life, and that's Antony and Cleopatra. You've written about Antony and Cleopatra, which opened the current, once called New Metropolitan Opera House, with really more direct honesty than anybody else. I wish everyone would go to johnmaucheri.com and read The Met at 50 under his writings menu. Let's talk about this. Sure. Um, you know, I first heard some of Antony and Cleopatra the summer before at Bayreuth. Um, I was a student. I was just 20 years old, I think. Um, I was a student at Yale, and I had a summer traveling fellowship, and I went to all the opera festivals, and summer of 66, and I got to Bayreuth, and there I, I met um, Friedland Wagner through um, a young guy who was playing piano for Pierre Boulez, uh, Parsifal, named Mike Thomas from Los Angeles, who turned into Michael Tilson Thomas he, somewhere later on. But at the time, he was Mike, and I was John, and I was carrying my first scores around. And 
I heard um, Jess Thomas learning the role of Caesar uh, at Bayreuth. So you have to, this is already a mind twister for people listening to this, right? Jess was singing Tannhäuser that summer, and, uh, and I'm listening to Sam Barber's music and uh, Shakespeare's words um, wafting out of an open window in Bayreuth. Um, I, I was a very lucky kid, and I was also pretty smart. You know, New Yorkers, we are, we're tough, and we know how to do things. You know, some kids learn how to play stickball, or they collect baseball cards or whatever they do. They do drugs, whatever they do. I did tickets for the Met, and I knew how to get them. And I, I, I learned the process. And I, it, in those days, the way you, you, what you did was that you knew when tickets were on sale, and you sent a self-addressed envelope with a check, special delivery to be delivered that morning that tickets went on sale. And over the years, thinking back on this, because I was a teenager at the time, I'm pretty sure that Al Hubey, who was featured in the Met uh, documentary, The House, I'm sure Al in those days was the head of the box office. And I would always write a note, you know, I'm 15 years old and I'm hoping to hear Madame Nielsen do the ring kind of letters. And uh, I always got tickets to absolutely everything I asked for. Um, I'm, so I saw Joan Sutherland make her debut in Lucio, sitting in the back of the family circle with my mother. I mean, I saw... I saw Corelli and Leontine Price make their debuts on a Friday night. It was on my subscription, so it was just a regular night at the Met. It just happened that two of the greatest singers in the world were making their debuts. So the long and short of it is I got tickets for the last night of the old Met and the first night of the new Met. And um, this was pretty emotional, both of those things, of course. The last night of the old Met was just overwhelming. I mean, who was on that stage? Just just Stokowski conducting the uh, entrance of the guests, repeating on and on with, you know, da capo, da capo, as, you know, Marjorie Lawrence gets wheeled out, or or, or Giovanni Martinelli comes out, or, uh, you know, uh, I remember I remember Lily Pons being really pissy because she said, I can still sing. <laughs> they have not asked me to sing. I can still sing. Um, but, you know, Loda Lehmann is there, Maria Yeritsa. It was just unbelievable. And those those were the people sitting on stage, right? <laughs> and then so you had Zinka Milanoff and Birgit and, you know, all those uh, wonderful people. Then, you know, a few months later, it's Antony and Cleopatra. And in between, I've gone to Europe for the first time and gone to Gleinborn and gone, gone to Vienna and Munich and Bayreuth, as I said, and Paris at the, at the Comique to see a Pelleas and Melisande in the production by Jean Cocteau. So this was an extraordinary summer for me. So that night, uh, going to the Met uh, with my Aunt Rose, who was the, she was the woman who really brought me to the opera mostly because, as I oft told, Uncle Jim always fell asleep in Act Two, and she got tired of that, so she said, Johnny, would you go to the opera with me? So I brought Aunt Rose with me for that opening night, and it was, you know, an extraordinary night, and all the stories about it, uh, that the adumbration of time, but here's the fact. The music, once it, but the moment it started, I mean, yes, of course, there was the Star Spangled Banner, and um, there was all of that, and there were speeches. But then it was time to do the opera, you know, and, and write that fanfare. I mean, that was so 
totally memorable. I mean, Sam had this ability to write a tune, as, as people embarrassed, you know, to say that in, in the 1960s. He was unafraid to write a great tune. And um, it was so, already we were just, wow, this is the news from Alexandria. And of course, the difficulty was there were no super titles in those days. So unless you knew the Shakespeare, you were still na navigating Elizabethan English and a chorus. Plus the fact that we learned subsequently Zeffirelli had to restage the whole thing because the revolve broke. So it, it was, you know, they, it, it was a sign of the show must go on like you can't believe. Um, and it was, it was astounding to, to experience it. And of course, it was all mixed up with the occasion, right? It was an occasion. I, I talk about this, how, how extraordinary and appropriate it was, how totally appropriate it was that the Met commissioned Sam to write this opera. And, and, you know, and on the 50th anniversary of the Met, it was really sad that not a note no, there, that day, you know, it was Simon Rattle doing a rehearsal of Tristan und Isolde, and when I talked to him during a break, he said, "Oh, oh, oh, is it today?" <laughs> I was like, "Really?" <laughs> I was unbelievably sad, I have to say, and I mean, I get it; it's a big institution, and and I know I would do it differently. So you assume that you know better than everybody else, but that's not the case. Obviously, decisions were made. But the bottom line was that night was extraordinary, and and when I look at the the, um, the the silk program that I have right in this room where we're talking, and the people who were in that production, you know, I got to work with just about every single one of those people as a conductor. It's like some kind of gift. I mean, you know, I did. Don Giovanni with Hostino, and I did Fidelio with with Jess Thomas, and I got to conduct Leontine at the Kennedy Center Honors, and you know the, the, these people that I saw, and this is the miracle of 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 being a conductor, being a musician, is that y y your life as a child and as a young adult, and your life as an old person, you, they all time stops, so you get to talk to all of them. But I would say this. At the time I saw it, I, I was uh, I was still in the thrall of the modernist movement of of com composition at Yale. Uh, I showed up at Yale, writing I've written a piece in F sharp minor, I think, and they patted me on the head, as I frequently say, and they applied the electrodes, and I came out of it, and I was suddenly writing non-tonal music. So I was of the opinion that the music was old-fashioned and as memorable as it was, I could not open myself up to the genius of it. Um, and I've changed, of course, because, you know, snobbery has only one effect. It has the effect of closing you out of experiencing many things. And so my life certainly from that point to where I am now is quite different, and my attitude toward Antony and Cleopatra is quite different. In fact, I would be so happy to um, edit a, a correct edition of the score, because although Giancarlo wanted to protect Sam by cutting out all the ballet music and adding that love duet with words not by Shakespeare, um, the actual original score published by G. Shermer, seen, I think there were 14 performances, so you 
multiply 14 times 4,000 people. There were a lot of people saw Antony and Cleopatra, and of course it was broadcast on the radio. That opera, which is a 20, kind of 20th century Aida, with its ballets, with its dances, with its, um, with its awareness of all the contemporary music that's going on was going on at the time. So it's not that Sam, you know, lived in an isolation chamber. He knew everything that was going on, and he chose to use it when it was appropriate. Remember, you know, music. Uh, uh, what ethnomusicology, which was called in those days, had come a long way. So that if you're going to write music about ancient Rome or about Egypt, you had a lot, a lot of choices that say Verdi didn't have when he wrote Aida. And I like to um, compare what what Sam did and what Alex North did for the movie of Cleopatra. Because in both cases, both, you know, sort of around the same time, although Sam is, Sam's opera is later than, than, uh, than Alex North's score to the uh, Elizabeth Taylor movie. But they both are, are powerfully influenced by the studies of ethnomusicology. So, I I see Antony and Cleopatra as one of those you know one of those epitome moments of of lyric theater in the 20th century, more so than Vanessa. I mean, as as wonderful as Vanessa is, and so we're really desperate to have somebody, and it maybe it will be I, but it'll be somebody, just to restore the original version of it, and then have the changes and the cuts as options for directors. But it, it is an astounding score. Also, I would like to say that all the talk about Zeffirelli's production with the aluminum um, kind of Venetian blinds, it was glorious to look at. I mean, I don't. People were just out to hate it. That's the funny thing about it. When you when you think about those times, um, there was just such a strong move to just. Ignore or or demonize anything that had a melody, anything that was part of great epic theater, um, and so we're we're uh, at a loss for for that attitude, and it's time to bring it back. You know, there's a moment where where Ben Britton, uh, in 1960, when he wrote a Midsummer Night's Dream, when the lovers awake, um, the two pairs of lovers, what he writes, which is for me maybe the most moving moment in all of, of, of Benjamin Britten's operas is that every major triad, all 12 of them are played one after another, each one orchestrated differently. And it's and, and in other words, we wake up from this dream, this nightmare dream, and here is E flat major. And oh, and here's F major. Oh, now there's D major. And that's played by the percussion or now it's played by the strings. And all 12 are played. You know, Sam, Sam could write as complex as anybody, complex music, just as Leonard Bernstein. You know, Lenny proved that in the first scene of A Quiet Place, and that's about as dense and, and, and complex as anything anybody ever wrote, and he wasn't, you know, depending on tone rows in order to achieve those sounds. He was just writing them. Um, so there was no procedure that was churning out these possibilities for him. It was just Lenny writing. Sam could be as complex as anybody, but there was this sense um, of being both American and European, uh, being a global composer, uh, of capturing um, uh, time lost. I mean, you know, à la recherche du temps perdu, there's definitely that, but also it's completely of his time. 
you listen to Antony and Cleopatra, and you look at the architecture of the Metropolitan Opera, if you look at what people were wearing, if you look at everything that happened around that time, they're all of a piece. So he managed to capture his time and put it on the stage. It was a great achievement. Your choice of words when you wrote about the Met at 50 really arrives at that because you called the sneering at Samuel Barber's music at the time um, to be against anyone who wrote in a so-called extended tradition. And in that regard, on the other hand, you know, it's a relative term, but it's a strong term you use to say that Barber's music shriveled after that. And we know that there were some masterworks that he wrote after that. Yes, but what the impact it had on him was devastating. In a funny way, the same thing happened to Lenny after A Quiet Place. Um, you know, we like to think that critics uh, are kind of free to write what they want. Yes, of course. But there's a moment where critics have to understand their really almost appalling power that they have on a creative personality. And whether that's Tchaikovsky or Rachmaninoff or, or Prokofiev or Leonard Bernstein or Sam Barber, you, you, you know, Sam, you, you can just, I can just viscerally feel the emotion of, of Giancarlo when we spoke of Antony and Cleopatra. That for Sam, you know, that for Giancarlo, because Giancarlo really came to the rescue. I mean, he was, what Sam Barber did for him at Curtis is what Giancarlo wanted to do for Sam years later, just protect him, just to restore his, his reputation. And ironically, of course, with Giancarlo, you know, with the Pulitzers and the Metropolitan and the television operas and all of that, it's as if each one of his operas got worse and worse criticism. There is indirect evidence that Minotti was the shoe-in to write the libretto, but that I think the Met management thought that it was most appropriate, if not a celebrity choice, to have Zeffirelli write and stage. And so I think there you have sort of a lost opportunity, and we can imagine how, how differently things would have gone if Minotti repeated the role that he played in Vanessa. Yeah, it would have been very different, and it would have also been interesting to see whether the libretto would have been all Shakespeare's words or not. You know, remember, Midsummer Night's Dream, again, is is, is Peter Pears doing that for Ben Britton. It's a very sweet kind of equal moment. I mean, how do you how do you set a Shakespeare? I mean, how do you do a Romeo and Juliet? Do you do you do it with the words of Shakespeare? And so, um, it would have been very different. There's no question about that. And I, the last time I saw John Carlo, he spoke of of going to the Met with Sam years later. And they wanted to go backstage, and Sam's name wasn't on the backstage list, and they wouldn't let them in. And Giancarlo said, but this is the man who wrote the opera that opened this house. And the guard, you know, it's not the guard's fault, but the guard said, I'm really sorry, but his name isn't here. What an end to a story that is. I mean, if you were going to make a movie with that moment where... Sam Barber and Giancarlo are not allowed backstage <laughs> at the house that he opened 
it it says a lot about the 20th century and a lot about the power you know the politics the aesthetics the power the avant-garde the 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 cold war mentality um and we should not forget it. We, it. we should not gloss over it. It was not a simpler time. It was not a nicer time. It was a tough time. All times are tough. However, in, in the case of someone like Sam and Giancarlo, we had official aesthetics operating. And these aesthetics were determined during the Cold War about what was appropriate music for our time. And they were not set by America. They were set by Europe in Western Europe and especially Germany, which had come to find a new way to go forward by erasing the past. So anything that sounded like anything that had anything to do with World War II in that period was just not to be put on the stage. So everything had to be modern or modern, but that modernity was based on a 1909 idea of futurism and the pre-World War I uh, aesthetics that were developing in Germany and in Paris. So, you know, 100 years later, people are still calling that modern. And, of course, it's not modern, but it was, it was the only thing. And so you could do Aida, but you couldn't do Antony and Cleopatra, really. You, you had to do Stockhausen or, and you, you know, La Scala is a good example. You know, with their Zamstag aus Licht was perfectly okay for Scala after the war because you could go to it and not be accused of being a fascist. It had no smell of Mascagni or the great history of Italian opera. But so, so when you look at the commissions at the Met during the 20th century, <coughs> during the 20th century, and you look at December 31st, 1999, when the Met had a gala in which we said goodbye to the 20th century. In fact, we said goodbye to a millennium, right? What did they play? Well, they didn't play a note of anything they had commissioned. They, they played Deflator Mouse. And in the party scene, you had opera singers singing to Dream the Impossible Dream. You had songs and duets from Broadway, some operetta. And I think the closest you came to the 20th century was V.C. D'Arte and Nessun Dorma. But it was as if the Met were saying, no, no, we, we actually, on the one hand, we don't want to play San Barbara because it's so old-fashioned. On the other hand, we can't play any of the n new composers either, so we're just going to stick with the 19th century. And, I mean, after all, you know, Visitarte is from 1900, <laughs> so it just squeaks into the 20th century. So, you know, we're having this conversation. I hope it it's part of lots of conversations about the lost music of the 20th century. My new book, which you kindly referenced, is about classical music. And, uh, and For the Love of Music um, is about not only about what is classical music and what is this language of classical music, but it also touches on this, this mysterious aspect, which is that the central core repertory starts around 1710 and then ends. Indeed, I mean, Barber was aware of all these things you described, and he saw it unravel in the 20th century. It is a great bridge test for us to talk about, for the love of music, a conductor's guide to the art of listening. Um, to arrive there, um, I, I have to say that when I was kind of casting about for a narrative to tell Samuel Barber's story, there was a sort of prophet hovering over him in the form of a composer, his uncle Sidney Homer, 
who constantly encouraged him to be authentic to himself and honestly, not in so many words, to ignore the noise. But he also, that authenticity was going to have to come from a place that was also, if you will, emotional. It was driven by feeling. And it brought to mind some philosophical questions about what's the point of music? Why do we engage in this both social and interior practice of music if there's no emotion behind it? Um, if that is a word that you know we can even use. So uh, not having access to this book because we wait for it to arrive in a month, preview suggests that you're taking us on a journey through music history with a spirit of embracing music as perhaps an emotional language. Or, or at that, um, it could be that we are allowed to attach stories to music, personalize them. Um, you know, we don't have to worry about that program note um, quandary of is it programmatic or anything. Well, I fully believe that Western music is fundamentally programmatic. I, 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 you know, if you take the very rudiments of it and go back to where it starts, as far back as we can go, which is the written words of the Greeks, they already start by describing the different modes or scales as not only representing the different tribes in Greece, but when you hear music in those modes, you behave as if you are a member of one of those tribes. So that certain modes, music can make you violent or can increase antisocial behavior, or others can be calming. Now, right from the beginning, the Greeks talk about higher vibrations as being literally higher, like higher on a ladder. So it's not just that they're faster. So, you know, 440 cycles a second will seem lower than 880 cycles per second before they could even measure cycles per second. And they also noticed that, you know, a string that is half as long is one octave higher. And so all of these things, the translation of vibrations into up and down and the sense of home, which is whatever key or mode something's in, starts a language that's already pictorial. Right? It's already beginning there. As you go through thousands of years, you know, 2,500 years later, and we absolutely have built up this amazing language that the world understands. And I mean the world. I'm not talking just about you know, Western Europeans, but I mean Asians and people and every, every continent in the world understands this. So I wrote this book to not only encourage people to not be afraid to, uh, to affix stories or images to, to music they hear, because you will. It, you absolutely will. I mean, I used to use the example, if you're driving a, a, a red convertible across the uh, Golden Gate Bridge on a Sunday, beautiful Sunday uh, morning with the, the classical radio on and you're listening to Brandenburg Number no. 2 for the rest of your life, when you hear Brandenburg Number no. 2, you're going to be in that that car crossing the Golden Gate Bridge, even though Bach probably had no idea that you might do that. We just do that. But the book um, is now, not only encourages you to find other ways to listen, why, what, what do you do to hear a piece of music for the first time? What do you do when it's a piece of music by a composer you've never heard of, or it's one you do know, or you know one piece by that? How do you navigate first times? How do you navigate the hundredth time? Why is classical music always new? 
because it has to be translated, and you're going to be in a different place, and the orchestra and the room you're in will be a different one. But also, what is the essence of this thing called music? Why, why do we do it? Because if you look at its history, we've been making music as long as we've been human. So if, if some one of our great, great ancestors picked up a femur that's on, in the dirt and picked it up of some dead animal and put it to his or her mouth... Why did we do that in the first place? But once you went toot, you wanted to do it again. Somebody has read your book and mentioned that you are proposing classical music's suggestion of a harmonious moral order. Where are we there? Well, think of this for a minute. We, classical music, this core, this thing we call the central repertory, because we can find lots of reasons in the 20th century where this gets thrown out the window for various reasons. But you go from the Baroque period, let's say, or from the high Baroque, so we're talking about Handel and Bach and Vivaldi, you know, and you take it right up through, I don't know, through, uh, let's say, Prokofiev or Rachmaninoff or Copeland. The, the process, and San Barbara, the process is a process toward um, toward uh, uplift. Every symphony by Beethoven ends in a major triad, no matter how circuitous the journey. We are, after all, humans who aspire toward pleasure. We, 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 we want to go toward the light. Our feet are in the ground. Um, you know, just like any animal in a, in a lab, the, the, the mice will go not to get shocked, but will go for the cheese. We, it's a normal process that we go through. The, the part that makes it so mysterious is the invention of music and how we, at every moment of technology where we invent bronze or we discover how to um, use a lathe, we use it to make instruments. Now, we also use it for weapons. We use it to till the fields. We use it to protect our family. We use it for various things. But music is, in and of itself would appear to be useless. So why did, why did we take uh, a Stone Age uh, bone that we've cut holes into it and then by 1850 turn it into a flute? Why did we go through that? Because each time you made a different cut or made that tube out of a different piece of material, wood or metal, why were we constantly doing that? Why did we make gongs when we and bells when we knew how to cast them? Because music is who we are. Now, this book is, a, is reaffirming that music is who we are. It also encourages people that if they don't like music, certain kinds of music, that's okay because it's resp your response is personal. I mean, it's a personal story. So I was being told, say, that Sam Barber's music was, was old-fashioned at the time, and I was young enough to not be able to supersede that thought. I had to come to that later on when I thought, wow, I really love that music, actually, and I can really remember it. I mean, after all, I heard Antony and Cleopatra once, and I remember it. And when I saw it again at Juilliard, when Giancarlo helped create the second version of it, it was as if I had just heard it the night before. That's how memorable that music was. And it always made me sad that there was no recording of that first original version, but I certainly had the second version, which is recorded in Spoleto. So again, For the Love of Music is a, a, an affirmation of music, and it also, as I said, gives permission for you not to like something. Because as I say, if you don't like a certain kind of classical music, you're in really good company, and that is the company of people who love classical music. Because nobody, 
I know, loves it all, right? So, so you shouldn't worry about that. It's not your fault. <laughs> if you, I always hear people say, I don't understand music, but, and I go, well, wait a minute, just stop right there, right? <laughs> and with that, I guess I also, and I'd love to talk about one last big topic that you're such an expert on and have so much experience with. Um, we can bridge over to, I think, film music when we talk about the way or observe the way that a lot of people these days say they don't like classical music if you ask them outright. But they're relishing in traditional orchestral music when they go to the movies. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, even to begin with, starting with basic principles, what makes a film score good? Well, I'm gonna back up a little bit further than Please that. Do because we can talk about film music and we know what we're, ta we're talking about, but here's the deal. Film, music on film is a delivery system. It's not a style. And so what makes it unique in the 20th century was that it was no style. The st it, it used any style that was appropriate for telling its story. The difficulty with the whole atonal period at the, or the non-tonal period or the serial period, we all know what we're talking about, is that it was incapable of expressing anything other than one kind of emotion. There are no 12-tone comedies that have succeeded. So in other words, it, it, is, it is a kind of music that exists through a negative aesthetic. It can't sound beautiful. It can't sound comprehensible on the first time hearing. It cannot be tuneful. It cannot, it cannot. So what is left is something that's extremely useful, extremely uh, compelling, but nobody wants to be in that world forever. No one wants to stay there forever. So of course, film composers, dramatic composers, use it when it's appropriate. And they use it just as Schoenberg and Berg used it, which is to say to tell stories when you're either lost in space or lost in the woods or all alone in your, your, your little house and you hear a knock on the door and there shouldn't be anybody out there. But we still aspire toward a kind of a moral, a moral kind of solution. That sense of that everything is going to be all right. That you know, Just as the Greeks saw music as controlling our body functions as well as the universe. I mean, music was the great organizer. It expressed everything inside us, through us, and outside of us. And I think that that's still very true. So if you write music for films, let's say you're a Jerry Goldsmith or an Elmer Bernstein or a those composers who were completely, you know, trained in, in 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 conservatories and also worked with the founding fathers of Hollywood, who were all refugee composers, they could pull in jazz when they needed jazz. They could pull in atonal. If you think about, say, Planet of the Apes and Star Trek, this is both Jerry Goldsmith's versions of futures, two very different futures, the Star Trek future and the Planet of the Apes future. When you get to Planet of the Apes, which is a totally atonal score, I've said many times that if you played Planet of the Apes on a classical music night and called it Panels for Orchestra by, I don't know, make up a nice German name, there'd be people who'd object to the fact that they were playing modern music again. But when you play it on a concert and you call it Planet of the Apes, it's a pops piece. And, and you go, well, wait a minute, it's the same notes. 
And of course, Jerry being the brilliant man that he was, he uses jazz to represent the American astronauts trapped in this nightmare of the future. Um, so you have also this rhythmic bass uh, kind of vamp that goes on. So those composers who've succeeded in film writing are, are our great living composers. And there is an unbroken line from Bach and, and Handel to John Williams and beyond. And that is all because of World War II. That's all because the whole, the whole world of German symphonic and operatic music had to be transplanted out of Germany because they declared war on their own cultural class. It's a topic that's so large we could only even begin to address, but maybe <laughs> one way we could at least introduce that idea and then people can further study that fascinating um, emigre component to the development of the Hollywood film score that kind of we know today is to maybe do a little facetious speculation. You know, Samuel Barber was around when movies were becoming what they became. So couldn't we imagine what, how, if I had him in the room and asked him point blank, have you ever thought of writing a film score? Or for that matter, has Hollywood ever knocked on your door? And we could combine that with the, I think what would be interesting in this composer sort of focused um, conversation is to really hear you talk about when people like Korngold came here out of circumstance as well as, you know, the next thing for him to try. Well, that's there, right. there had to have been some conflict. There had to have been some, I, I feel constrained by this medium. I'm not able to write the way that I want to. And how would Sam Barber have felt if he had to fit things into the cinematic language? Well, when you write for what is the ultimate collaborative art form, you have to collaborate and you're not number one. So this is exactly why Schoenberg and Stravinsky couldn't do it. They, they just were not built for that. On the other hand, uh, you know, Max Steiner correctly said, you know, if Wagner were alive now, he'd be the best one of us. Um, Korngold said that Tosca was the greatest film score ever written. Um, Korngold didn't change his style one whit. I mean, you know, he was a genius in so many different ways. He could actually figure out how many bars of music at 144 beats per second for, you know, how many feet of film. I mean, he was that kind of guy. If we turn the story around a little bit and, and stop focusing on the so-called avant-garde experiments, the real avant-garde was a technological avant-garde, which was called sound film. Those young guys not only had an entryway job, and they didn't have a job in the ever-growing Third Reich because they weren't allowed to write. But they were they had the capability of writing music that would be perfectly synchronized to the drama, which, by the way, was Wagner, the epitome of Wagnerian composition. He expected his singers to move precisely to his music. That isn't music music, but when Sieglinde enters in the first act of, of Die Walküre, the music goes da-dum, 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 and... In the handwriting of Wagner's assistant, it says first step, second step, third step. She moved to the music. So when people say the, the score was Mickey Mouse, no, no, Mickey Mouse was Wagnerized because it was Wagner's, that was the music of the future he was talking about, where all the elements, dramatic, visual, orchestral, vocal, poetic, all were at the service of a single thing. So he, although Wagner was talking about the future, he was thinking about ancient Greece. Now, Sam Barber. 
Could Sam have dealt with that? I don't know. In the case of, say, Copeland, he managed that. Um, Lenny managed it once. Uh, but uh, but classical composers who who have that kind of arrogance that I know what I'm doing and I don't need to bend to anybody else and I want this to be four bars long and not three bars long could never could never have written for, for Hollywood. And here's the other thing. They would not have become as famous because Hollywood composers were just now, I mean, my God, I started playing Korngold in 1991 for people and I stood before orchestras in Germany who had never heard his name. So now we're talking about him more, but it's taken 30 years. And, there, and you know, and I know I was at the forefront of this with Waxman and Steiner and Korngold and Tiomkin um, and then Jerry Goldsmith and, and Elmer. Their names were kind of known, but now it's now much more known. So most of those guys were basically anonymous composers who went to work like Johann Sebastian Bach went to work. You, you argue that they had the right to the measures, but what do you think Tchaikovsky was doing when he wrote The Sleeping Beauty? He was being given a template of how many bars of what to write, and he did. You know, the great composers trans transcend their limitations. In fact, every composer usually needs them because the last thing a composer should have is total freedom. That's like that's the nightmare. That's the chaos. So whether Sam could have written, um, I don't know because it would depend on his relationship with the director. But here's the point. His music, however, is tr tremendously influential. But, you know, he didn't have to write film music to influence film composers. You know, after all, remember, with both Stravinsky and Schoenberg living in Los Angeles, though they didn't write film music, their influence was huge. And also, in the case of Schoenberg, he was a teacher. So a lot of the Hollywood composers and arrangers studied with him. Now, according to his son, Larry, the thing about Schoenberg is he didn't try to teach people to write in his style, whatever that style was, because Schoenberg wrote in many different styles. He just taught people to be better musicians, just as Hindemith was doing at Yale. He didn't train people to write Hindemith. He wrote, you know, so when you think about it, uh, you've got the man of La Mancha, you know, there you've got Mitch Lee, who studied with, with Hindemith and gave Hindemith total credit for his ability to write to dream the impossible dream. You don't think in those terms. So Sam... Yes. And Giancarlo, yes. Of course they had a tremendous influence. You have to look at Giancarlo, by the way, as the continuity of Italian melody into the 20th century when that was not allowed in the most of the houses. So Nino Rota, Henry Mancini, Mancini, and you, and you look at, at, uh, at the great teacher, uh, Mario Castelnuovo Tedesco from Florence, these people continued the Italian lyrical line into the 21st century. Um, and Sam represents that European-American um, kind of mixture, the, 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 the great um, confluence of influences there that exists in all of his works. So I believe that Sam would have had a tremendous influence and probably still does. I always like to end by just simply finding out what you see coming next for your projects. Um, we've talked about the book, and then I also like to ask uh, if you had unlimited possibilities, if there's a dream project um, that you also would like to describe. Well, as far as the dream projects, I have so many dreams, it's possible to get through a night, right? But, but of course, one of them I've talked about, which is to edit uh, Antony and Cleopatra and make it available for opera houses to do without going through the kind of nightmare of, of, of which version. Because as you may or may not know, 
the original scores were cannibalized to make the second version. You know, we're talking about a time before there was the kind of photocopying the way we have now. But that would be one of my dreams. I have a number of the other ones, but since we're speaking about Sam, that would certainly be number one there. Uh, and also because it is a missing link, as far as I'm concerned, in the history of opera in the 20th century. Uh, upcoming projects, uh, well, uh, there's the book called Music in a Century of War, which is the, which has really been at the heart of a lot of what we've talked about. And that's the book that is almost finished. I've really been writing that one for 30 years, but that's the book that I think will will continue uh you know, the, the second book is, is, is the one we talked about earlier, which, which is uh, For the Love of Music, a, a Conductor's Guide to the Art of Listening. But that book talks about the central canon. It does not address why classical music stopped at a certain point in the 20th century. I mean, that's literally stopped from the point of view of most listeners. We should... If you believe the avant-gardists and you believe the, the Pierre Boulezians and all of those others, we should have by now 75 years of masterpieces that we all go and hear. And you'd have a really hard time you know, naming five works that the entire world thinks of as representing the, the period from 19, say, 60 to now. And that's wrong. But that should be a cause of, of, of conversation. So this book called um, uh, Music in a Century of War, Reclaiming the 20th Century, is is down there. I'm conducting a lot of music of Danny Elfman. I uh, have recorded the violin concerto, and we'll be doing that in Paris um, at the end of September, and then in uh, in November and December. Not only m- more uh, of Danny's music in Edinburgh and Glasgow and Dublin and London, but uh, another project I have, which is The Nutcracker and the Mouse King, where I've retold Hoffman's original novel, little The Fairy Tale, and told it again, told it in contemporary, you know, just told, retold it in English, and I've made us a, a, a score of, of Tchaikovsky's music, imagining what Tchaikovsky would have written had he had the story he really wanted, because he never liked the ballet of The Nutcracker, because it only told the middle part of the story. So that's some of my projects, but who knows what tomorrow will bring. Thank you, John, so much for this conversation, adding to the oral history about all of this. Thank my you so pleasure. Much. Thank you, Paul.